If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We'll be in verses 1 to 12. If you're visiting us this morning and you do not own a Bible, it is found on page 855 in the Bibles and the chairs. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. Merry Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. In honor of God's word, please stand for the reading of God's word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at the rising, at its rising, and have come to worship him. King, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply distressed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child when you find him, report back to me so that, so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to worship me, falling, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. January 1st, 1863. President Abraham Lincoln signed and made to go into effect the executive order of the Emancipation Proclamation. This order would free the slaves in the Confederate South. In the South, it ended race-based chattel slavery. And when it went into effect, the news spread all over the world. And the news provoked some sort of response, particularly when you think about the South. Different responses. Slaves who were once enslaved received for the first time the very thing they should have had all of their lives, freedom. Think about the joy that they had when they heard the news that they went from being possessions to now having citizenship. Think about the owners, how that news would have hit their ears as they themselves would have been greatly angered because their oppression and dehumanization of African Americans have come to an end. 
their primary source of income has been changed. Now, for people in the North, citizens, think about how that news may have hit them. Most didn't own slaves, so absolutely nothing changed for them. Probably would have been apathetic because it really doesn't affect them much. The responses of that news actually reveals the disposition of the hearts of the hearers. Whether it's excitement, anger, or apathy, it is like a mirror exposing what is going on in the hearts of the hearers. The reality is the dissemination of information, when it hits the ears of the hearers, it solicits a response. And how one responds reveals one's heart. Though the news is given, it impacts everyone differently because it doesn't impact everyone in the same way. Good news is given and some people respond with positivity. They're elated and other people, they're discouraged. Other people, they are angry. Other people, they just don't care. The reality is the response is telling to one's heart. When good news is communicated, how one responds reveals the disposition of their hearts. But in this morning's passage, we hear of the best of news that has been given. That Christ has been born. And this news provokes a myriad of responses. Exposing what is going on in the hearts of the hearers. In this passage this morning, we're going to see different responses, and there's only one right response. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Respond rightly to King Jesus' coming to save. Respond rightly to King Jesus' coming to save. I have two points in their exhortations for us. We're to go to Jesus, and then we're to respond appropriately to him. Go to Jesus, respond appropriately to him. So for a little bit of context, the Gospel of Matthew is tracking the life of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus is the promised Messianic King, the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew begins his Gospel given the genealogy that he is the promised son of David and promised son of Abraham. He goes through the genealogy to display that Jesus is that. And then we see the miracle of the virgin conception. As the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and Mary is pregnant with Jesus. The angel of the Lord spoke to Joseph. And through this conversation with Joseph, God has made known through the angel that God has promised what Jesus would accomplish with his final breath before Jesus took his first breath. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says, You shall 
Name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We hear the promise of his, the outcome of his saving work before he took his very first breath. What we see in this passage, and what we see throughout the book of Matthew, if you read it, is that Jesus' kingship, it impacts all nations. News of his coming demands a response. But what should we do? Well, we should go to him. Look at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And so Jesus has been born in the city of Bethlehem, which is the city of King David. And during the time of his birth, here we see Herod the Great being king. He was named king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. This Herod, he was a great masterful builder. He renovated the temple. Even his very own enemies were enamored by his work of building the temple, of constructing it. He was also a wicked ruler as he oppressed people. And here we see wise men have come. These are magi. They've traveled from their home country. Now we don't know where they're from. We don't know how many there are. Though many will say that there are three because of the three gifts that were given at the end of this section. But we really don't know how many. But we do know that they are Gentiles. As they came from their home country, verse 12, they went back to their country. They came from the east, went back to their country. We also see that they were astronomers, experts in studying astrology and the stars. They could have started NASA and been the headmasters at it. And we also see the very purpose of their coming. Look at it, verse 2. It says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. First thing to notice is how they refer to Jesus. King of the Jews. At his very birth, they confessed him to be the king. Not that he is coming to be king, but that he is the king currently. He's the messianic king, the anointed one who has been promised throughout the scriptures. When sin entered the world, God had made a promise that he would send one to reverse the curse. God made known that Abraham himself will have an offspring and that in his offspring will come kings. It was the very patriarch Jacob who prophesied about one of his sons, Judah, that the scepter will not depart from Judah. It was King David who God had made a covenant with, saying in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that he is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. The prophets spoke of this coming one who was to come, that he is glorious, that he is righteous, that he is humble, and that he is a servant. Beloved, if you survey the entire Old Testament, you can summarize it up in one word, anticipation, because someone is coming. God has promised that someone would come to save and redeem and reign. 
Well, in this morning passage, that someone has been born. And we see that his kingship, it impacts both Jews and Gentiles. Beloved, diversity is a good idea. It is a beautiful sight. But let's be clear. It is not the result of man's innovation. It has always been God's design and plan to save and gather and unite a people around himself in his kingdom. We see this throughout scripture. In Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham that in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 says, in your offspring, my bad, it says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And we see glimpses of this throughout Matthew's gospel. Think about the genealogy. You have the inclusion of Gentile women who are part of the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus commended the faith of a centurion man who was a Gentile. In Matthew chapter 27, it was a centurion man who confessed that Jesus was the Son of God upon his death. In the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commissions his disciples to make disciples of all, all, all nations. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. He is the king who brings the kingdom, and his kingdom will consist by his grace of people of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. Behold the sovereignty of God in this scene. Verse 2, these wise men, they said that they saw his star at its rising. They came not because they heard the message from a radio, not because they attended a Billy Graham crusade. They came because God in his sovereignty used a specific celestial body of light in the dark sky, one that they've never seen before to communicate to them that the Christ has been born. They saw Jesus' star. They may have been familiar with Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, that says a star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel. Behold the beauty and power of God to where creation is the canvas of his artistry. God created the stars, positioned them, named, one, named them, and had that star shine at that time so that these people can see it. God in his sovereignty had the star communicate that heaven's king and earth's savior has been born. God in his sovereignty met these magi men where they were at, spoke to them in the language of their expertise about his Son, this is no coincidence. Beloved, no person is too lost that God can't find them. God knows exactly where we are, for he determines the places where we live and the times that we live. Behold the sovereignty of God, but beloved, also behold the grace of God. 
the unmerited favor of God that he would reveal this news to pagans. These wise men, they study the stars, not the scriptures. They didn't seek God. In fact, it was God who sought them. Beloved, it is God who always, always, always does the pursuing. In our fallenness, scripture says that no one seeks for God. Left to ourselves, we will hide from him like Adam. We will pay him no mind and we will wander astray. Beloved, we didn't seek for God as if he was lost. It always gets me when people say that they found God. God was never lost. It was you who was lost. Think about this. God is omniscient and omnipresent. There is no way in the world that he could ever be lost. In fact, God in his love and grace sought us because we were lost. And his gracious pursuit, it is effectual. Beloved, the only reason that we go to Jesus is because God first came after us. We were the ones who were spiritually dead and God made us alive. We were the ones who were in darkness and God shone light on our hearts. We were the ones who were deaf and God unstopped our deaf ears. We were the ones who were blind and God gave us sight. The very reason why our disposition towards Jesus has ever changed is because God has chosen to be gracious to us. The reason why we love Jesus is because God has been gracious. The reason why Jesus' voice now is sweet to us. And when we see him with eyes of faith, we are captivated by his beauty and glory and greatness. The only reason is because of the grace of God. Behold the grace of God that he will go after these Gentiles that they may come and see his son. The king of the Jews who came to save Jew and Gentile. Beloved, they were so impacted by the news that they journeyed all the way from their country to Jerusalem. Regardless of the danger or the length of days that it would take, they deemed him worth it. That they wanted to see him with their very own eyes that they may worship him. They said that we have come to worship him. Worship. Not everyone goes to church, but everyone is a worshiper. We were created to worship, to ascribe beauty and worth and honor and glory. God has created us for that very purpose, and He has created us for it to be the for He Himself to be the object of our worship. But as in all things, sin has also corrupted that. To where worship has now been misdirected. No longer attributed to the one who is deserving of it. But now, you see, worship of family, finances, fame, sports teams, politics, you name it. Anything can be the object of worship because of sin. In the words of John Calvin, our hearts are idol factories. 
And though our misplaced worship is offensive to a holy and righteous God, in his love, he sent his son to pay for our idolatry. To pay for it with his very own blood. By his grace, he sent his son to redeem us that we may know him. And according to the words of Ephesians, that we may praise his glorious grace. Beloved, they were eager to come to worship Jesus. Their priorities couldn't be straighter because Jesus is the glorious one, the majestic one, the one who is high and lifted up, the one whom angels has praised. That one has come down and he is worthy. Beloved, we go to Jesus and worship him because he is worthy of our worship. We who are in Christ, we are the beneficiaries of his saving work. Our eyes have been opened and we know that he is glorious. We draw near in faith because he has saved us by his grace. Beloved, if these folks can go to worship him, how much more should we who are in Christ? For we have more knowledge of Jesus than they did. We know who he is. We have tasted and seen that he is good. The proper response to revelation of Jesus Christ is to worship him. For worship, it is the culmination of adoration and praise, and the only true object of our worship is God alone. For he alone is worthy. He alone is beautiful and glorious. There is no one greater. There is no one higher. There is no one more loving. There is no one more gracious. There is no one who is better than God. How much more should we go and worship him, especially in response to his grace in sending his son to redeem us, that the king of heaven will become a man? So may we go to Jesus. Beloved, may we also respond appropriately to him. As the wise men made it to Jerusalem, making known their very purpose to worship, the king of the Jews has been born. News has spread all over the city. But not everyone is happy about it. Look at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was distressed. And the reason he is deeply disturbed because his kingship has been threatened. And the Jews, they also were distressed because they're afraid. Herod was unpredictable and a wicked man. Herod's response gets at the reality that news about Jesus demands a response. Jesus is the most popular person throughout all of human history. His name and his news, it demands a reaction. And beloved, how one responds is actually a window into their hearts. Herod responded with hostility. It struck a nerve in him because what he treasured most was threatened. You can always tell what one treasures by how they respond to it being threatened to lose it. If they will sin to get it, 
They were to sin to get it. They will sin to keep it. And whatever that is for them is their greatest treasure. And whatever that is for them, as you think about it for your own selves, beloved, if there's anything that you would sin to get or sin to keep, be mindful that you don't own it. It owns you. Herod heard the news and began an investigation with one purpose, to kill Jesus. Verse 4, he assembled all the chief priests and asked about when, about where would the Messiah be born. Verse 7, he goes on his interrogation. He asked the wise men. He summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time that the star appeared. Verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem, directing them to search for the child carefully and to report back to him. And then he also lied, told them that he wanted to know that he may worship him, but instead he had ulterior motives. He wanted to know the location of Jesus, that he may kill Jesus. This satanic plot, this satanic scheme, as you read the remainder of Matthew chapter 2, you will see that he made an edict to kill all the children, both two-year-old, not both, but two years old and younger, in and around Jerusalem. He didn't want to worship Jesus. He wanted to end Jesus. As one commentary would say, Herod was more interested in saving his throne than saving his soul. And in the end, Herod would lose both. Herod responded with hostility. And even to this day, we see hostility in the sense of how Christians are persecuted around the world for preaching the gospel. And the reason is because the gospel is humbling. It testifies that one is a sinner, that they are guilty of sin, and that they are unable to save themselves. Morality and money cannot atone for one's sin. Salvation is not in oneself, but it is outside of ourselves and in Jesus Christ alone. That news is offensive to human pride. The gospel is also offensive. Because people view Jesus wrongly. Sin blinds one to see Jesus correctly. When hearers hear, they respond with hostility. Oftentimes it's because they see Jesus as a threat and a hindrance to their life and joy. They oppose him, and sometimes people would even say that they deem him to be a killjoy. Couldn't be further wrong. The one who has life in himself, he came that he may give life. Beloved, Jesus didn't come to take away anything except sin and its consequences. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't take life. Instead, he gives it by laying down his own life. He didn't come to take away people's joy, but instead to give people his joy and the fullness of it. It is found in him alone. And so if you're visiting us this morning, or you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. I want you to know that Jesus did not come to take life, but instead to give it by laying his down. He didn't come to condemn the world, friends. He came because we were condemned. 
He came to save. And his saving works displayed through his substitutionary death on the cross, his victorious resurrection from the grave. And he saves all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. He is the greatest gift. And the way you receive that gift is by faith, turning from your rebellion and trusting in Jesus. Friends, I would charge you this very day to do so. Receive the greatest gift in Christmas that you could ever receive, which is Christ and eternal life. And so Herod responds with hostility. The Jews and the religious leaders, they responded with apathy. Look at verses 4 through 6. Herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And so they appealed to Scripture, answering Herod's question, as God made known through his word where the Messiah would be born, it is through the prophets that God made it known. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation. Because no prophecy ever come by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Here we see special revelation where God specifically reveals himself, his promises, his work, and his plans, and it is found in Scripture. Beloved, if you want to know God, study your Bibles. Believe your Bibles. For it is the only place where God has specifically revealed himself. So they appeal to Scripture quoting Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, which is part of our scripture reading, as it testifies that the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. And in that scripture reading, it also testifies that his existence preceded his birth. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. The promised Messianic king would be God in human flesh. This is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who eternally existed with the Father and the Spirit. He has condescended to the earth that he created, becoming like man, taking on human flesh, having a physical body, being like us in every way except without sin. This is the promised shepherd king who Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah chapter 23, in Ezekiel chapter 34, this one was promised, the son of David, he will be a shepherd, he will come, he will go after the sheep, he will bring them in, he will protect them, and he will reign over them in justice and righteousness. They knew these verses. They heard the news from the Magi that this one has been born. They heard about them, the Magi seeing the star. They could quote Numbers chapter 24 in their sleep. If there's anyone who should have led a parade all the way to Bethlehem, it should have been the scribes and the Pharisees. 
But even if they didn't believe it, at least send Sherlock Holmes to investigate it to see if it was true. But what did they do? They answered the questions and went about their business. Herod was more concerned about the news than they were. And this apathy that they displayed, it is only the tip of the iceberg. Because as you journey through the Gospels, you will see that this apathy turns into aggression as they persecuted Jesus and had him nailed on the tree. Beloved, it is really possible to have knowledge of Scripture, to know much about God and yet not know him. Case in point, these are teachers of the law, and yet they did not know the God who they taught about. Beloved, this is Bible Belt churchianity. Where folks just go to church, they can quote to you John 3.16, and those very scriptures they can quote has no impact on their life at all. Does not change them. Does not shape them. Instead, they live the very opposite of the instructions that are found in Scripture. Beloved, it is not enough to know much about God. We must know him. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God doesn't want us to merely know about him. He wants us to know him through his son, to have a relationship with him. It is evidenced through repentance of sins, through faith in Jesus, and love motivated by obedience. These religious leaders, they didn't know God and didn't love him. And y'all, this response is the most alarming Because who gave the response? Those who claim to love God. This is very sobering for us. The reality is, but though we know Christ, by his grace, our affections for him can wane and turn into apathy. I don't say this to scare you, but I say it to sober you. It is very possible for our affections to turn into apathy. Well, how does it happen? Same way it happens in a marriage. How a marriage can go from being really sweet to being stale. Just do nothing. This happens very often in marriage. Couple gets married. The first couple of years is fresh and fun and exciting. And then over time, The pursuit wanes. Dates become non-existent. Conversations, you're not doing it to connect with each other and to learn more about each other, but it's solely about the needs around the house and what needs to get done. Being celebrated and enjoyed is replaced with being tolerated. How does this happen? Well, it happens when you go from being intentional to just doing nothing. And the same thing can happen in one's relationship with the Lord. The reality is, if we do not draw near, if we do not seek him, we will drift from him. 
If we don't renew our mind, our thoughts of God will be warped and wrong to where we'll be angry over unmet expectations. We'll be indifferent towards him because we held him to promises that he never made. The relationship began to feel different, but the thing is, it wasn't God who changed it all. The reality is, beloved, if we want to maintain a vibrant relationship with the Lord, it must be cultivated. It takes work. We must discipline ourselves to be in his word and commune with him in prayer. The Apostle Paul prayed that our love would increase according to knowledge. So we're to remain in his word and seek him by faith. Now we live in this body of flesh, so there may be seasons of coldness and apathy where we feel that, but in those moments we are to walk by our feelings, but walk by faith. So we say prayers like, God, help me by your spirit to study your word and seek to comprehend the incomprehensible dimensions of your love. Father, I feel indifferent. Help me to seek you by faith, knowing that in your timing, you will remove the cloud and I will with joy see the beauty of the sun. If we're going to combat Apathy and indifference, we must meditate on God's love. God wasn't indifferent in sending his son. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus wasn't indifferent in coming, for the Bible says that he loved us and gave himself for us. Therefore, beloved, may we not be indifferent in response to his great love towards us. And so Herod, he responded with hostility. The religious leaders, they responded with apathy. Apathy. The proper response is worship. And that's exactly what the wise men did as they were sent to Bethlehem. Look at verses 9 and 10. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen in its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. They saw the star, the greatest navigational system that has ever been on this earth, better than Waze and Google Maps. They were led by the omniscient and omnipresent God. And they followed him all the way until they got to the house where verse 11 and verse 12 says, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling down to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. They entered the house. At the very sight of baby Jesus, they bowed before him prostrating themselves before him in reverence of him. What you see is the inferior adorning the one who is infinitely and eternally superior. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And even as a baby, he is worthy of worship because he is God incarnate, the Savior Beloved, this is the proper response when you see Jesus in his glory and you know him by faith. 
the response is worship because he is the only rightful object. He is beautiful and glorious. His worth surpasses all things in all creation. All glory and honor and power and praise is to be given to King Jesus. We do this in our corporate gathering in anticipation of eternity. Knowing that when we see him on that day, we will worship him throughout eternity. When we sung, how worthy, how worthy, that is what they are singing right now in heaven. How worthy, how worthy is the lamb who was slain. Beloved, these wise men, they bowed before Jesus. The very thing that Christians do of our own volition because we know his greatness and his glory. And the very thing that all people will one day do. Regardless of the location, the disposition of their hearts, whether they do it willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow to King Jesus and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And beloved, the corporate gathering is a dress rehearsal. We do this weekly in anticipation of that final day. These men, they traveled not to get something from King Jesus, but to give something to him. Their worship and gifts. They gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This alludes to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, where it says, They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. Now, many interpret these gifts symbolically. Gold because Jesus is king, frankincense, because Jesus is God, and myrrh, because Jesus would die. Now, I don't know if these wise men were thinking that when they did it, but it is certainly true. Jesus is king. He is the promised king who would come and reign on David's throne. He is God the Son incarnate, and he would die as a sacrifice for our sins to save sinners. Beloved, the gifts that they gave, these were very expensive gifts, and they deemed him worthy. And as expensive and as great as those gifts are, it pales in comparison to the gift that Jesus would give us. Because the king gave himself. He laid down his life that we may have it. Get this. The humble king came. He was laid in a manger. At the very beginning of his life, he was laid on wood. And at the very end of his life, he would be nailed to wood. Bearing the curse of sin for our salvation. Beloved, the greatest Christmas gift didn't come from below. Not REI, not Zales, not Toys R Us. Those gifts are sweet. They only last for a moment. But the greatest gift comes from above. God himself. Not packaged, not wrapped in a package, but wrapped in a person. Beloved, our sin is committed by man, separated us from God, and God became man to bring us back. The exalted one was made low to lift up the lowly, that we may be brought into his kingdom. So let me address the children in the room. Children, I know that today is Christmas and you are extremely excited about today. 
You may have received gifts. You may have already opened them. And I know you're probably ready for me to stop talking. So you can go home and play with those gifts. I want you to know, as good and as great as those gifts are, Christmas is about the gift of God's Son to the world to save sinners. Children, Christmas is not about us, but Christmas is for us. Because Jesus came to save sinners. Parents, if you haven't already, continue to have that conversation this very day about the true meaning of Christmas and how to respond. Beloved, our King has come. This is great news. In fact, the bookends of the book of Matthew testify to some of the greatest news ever spoken. That the King has been born and the angels made known that the King has risen. This is the greatest news ever. And it's because of his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, we who are in him have life and salvation. We have a real and eternal hope that lasts beyond 24 hours on December 25th. It lasts all throughout eternity. Beloved, may we respond appropriately, worshiping our King, who has saved us by his grace. Let's pray.